welcome to Peace and Resist. store man i have fireballs to sell you five for a dollar what do you think you want to make some fireballs today oh my god that's a terrible character yeah so so you know what i'm talking about so today of course because we're talking about fireballs in alabama with the rolling store man we are of course talking about john lewis and the rolling store man was this awesome character he was a guy like the ice cream truck driver in neighborhoods now where you'd hear his like bell you'd hear him coming and you would run out with like your your change or whatever and you'd go out and get some food uh you know a snack a soda whatever and that is one of my first characters and one of my worst characters I've ever created. <laughs> I love that. But Good you know ice what? Cream man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know what? Um, you know what? Uh, they all had all the rolling store men. You know what they had on their uh, on their wagon when they'd show up? What's that? They had a sign, and it said, "Welcome to Peace and Resist, an activism podcast." I'm Peyton in Louisiana, which are the lands of the Atakapaw, Ishak, the Chittimacha, and the Choctaw peoples. And we have Kedro in Los Angeles. Hey, Kedro. Hey, yo, girl. It's great to see you. And I'm in the lands of the Keech, the Fernandino Tadavium, and the Chumash, and the Tongva. Peyton, I'm so excited to talk John Lewis with you. Our sources for today, John Lewis's 1999 memoir, Walking with the Wind, and his graphic novel series, March, Books 1, 2, and 3. Those are co-authored with Andrew Aiden, and they're illustrated by Nate Powell. They are so unbelievably good, I cannot recommend them enough. He also recently released Run, another graphic novel series, uh, posthumously. I wasn't able to get my hands on it yet, but I cannot wait to read those. I recommend those already without seeing them. I love the idea of graphic novels. I definitely have to look into that. Oh, you would love it, Peyton. Oh, they're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you uh, for the Libby app that I use for the library to get the free books. I'm going to uh, show you what I got. Oh, you're, you're going to trip out on this. And you're going to love these stories that we're picking up. The people, the names, the events, the, the history. This is the movement. This is the voting rights movement. The modern voting rights movement. This is where it all started with this kid in Pike County, Alabama. I am so excited. What do you think? Are you ready? I was born ready. Oh. <laughs> I am so excited to finally get into this one. Yes, let's take a walk with John Lewis, huh? There were two primary identifying characteristics about Pike County in the year John was born, poverty and churches. John Robert Lewis was born on February 21st, 1940, near Troy, Alabama, about 50 miles from Montgomery in Pike County. Pike County in this region of Alabama was mostly unchanged geographically for hundreds of years, with each of the communities peppered in between forests, wooded areas, and rolling hills loaded with back roads that tell both haunting and hopeful stories. Just north is hunting grounds in Tennessee. Populating the terrain are oak, hickory, and chestnut trees. Occasionally a creek or stream is calmly flowing nearby with local populations of deer that have flourished over ages. The county is named after the same man that Pikes Peak in Colorado is named after. Though General Zebulon Montgomery Pike never walked the grounds of Pike County, Alabama during his 1800s explorations. Black populations were scarce as of 1821 when Pike County was formally established. Agriculture began to replace ranching, and by the 1850s, one-fifth of Pike County was actually black. 
All but 10 of the 3,200 black residents were slaves. All but 10. Overwhelmingly, farmers were yeomen, working small to medium patches of land. And a side note here, after the Civil War, a large swath of white farmers actually relocated to Brazil. This led to a type of equity among black and white farmers at the time, with nearly all of them struggling with poverty as sharecroppers. So there were plantation owners as well. They were not nearly the majority of people, and of course they stayed wealthy. Hmm. So that was your History of Agriculture 101 with Cadro and Peyton. <laughs> <laughs> One form of terror that John Lewis grew up around was white capping. This was more than an intimidation. It was a direct threat of violence. The targets of white capping were black business owners and landowners who would be chased off of their property, often at gunpoint, and that property or land would be seized by the white people committing the terror act. In 1904, white capping occurred in Pike County. The Troy Messenger, a newspaper of the time that still runs today, recounted the indictment of five Pike County white men who had burned two black churches in an act of white capping. John Lewis referred to white capping as a variation of lynching. Wikipedia, which is, I would assume, likely probably a gentrified version of this. Uh, oh, yeah. It says it was a movement among farmers that occurred specifically in the U.S. during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was originally a ritualized form of extra-legal actions to enforce community standards, appropriate behavior, and traditional rights. However, as it spread throughout the poorest areas of the rural South after the Civil War, white members operated from economically driven and anti-black biases. States passed laws against it, but white capping continued into the early 20th century. And it says white capping is the crime of threatening a person's with a person with violence. Ordinarily, members of a minority group are the victims of white capping. Yeah. Um, one of the articles I saw, it they were, it had white caps, and then it compared them to the KKK. Yeah, ex um, exactly. And for John Lewis, he's in Pike County, Alabama, so he's in like a deep, deeply rural part of the South. So he's going to be on right. that poor spectrum that you're talking about. He's going to see the extreme sides, hear about the extreme versions of that, and it. Yeah, it sounds almost like an attempt at like creating a, uh, what do you call it, a housing association, a homeowners association, you know, which a lot of people already are like, you know, that's a terror group for you. But um, yeah, right. yeah, my mailbox has to be what color, but um, oh, I don't have a home. So what am I talking about? But, you know, really, like, it sounds like it was an attempt at an extreme version of that that quickly spoiled itself. Right. And it became this, this mechanism for people to just outright threaten black people for yeah and it sounds like particularly black business owners and landowners it's like eminent is, domain from a race instead of the government right which is you know terrifying yeah it's it sounds a lot like things are seeing today yeah that idea right of like it, it sounds like a it sounds like militiaizing in a way like calling upon the civilian to be like hello it's time for you to help us do this yep. and here's how yeah extra um, legal i mean yeah the texas abortion bill is a great example of that of like calling in people yeah to report these things to the government it's like what 
That's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> you're you're not. Uh, oh, you nailed it right there with that comparison. So in 1940, let's set the stage. Here's what's happening. The U.S. was not yet fighting in World War II. CBS demonstrated the first color television, so technology is developing, entertainment is changing. The first freeway in Los Angeles opened, which could be considered a gateway to hell by many people I know. Books written include The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. You didn't like my joke there, huh? Freeways, the first freeway being a gateway to hell. Oh, it's because of traffic and everything. You know, the 405. Oh, the 405. <laughs> uh, I think SNL has a whole bit about Californians discussing which routes to take with different freeways being suggested constantly. And then they it ends up with them staring at the mirror in each other or staring at each other in the mirror or something. Have you seen that? No. I don't think so, You should no. take the 405 to the 101, take Topanga up to the 118. No, you should totally just take Sepulveda. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, books written in 1940 include The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, a Southern Gothic classic by Carson McCullers, and For Whom the Bell Tolls by Hemingway. Richard Pryor, Raquel Welch, Pele, Alex Trebek, all born in 1940. Some heavy hitters. All right. Doesn't doesn't register with you. I get it. Yeah. I only one I <laughs> don't include this, but the other person I know is Alex Trebek. What? You don't know Richard Pryor? Of... Oh, that sounds familiar. He's, a, he's like an all-time famous black comedian. And you I'm know about names. Ooh, look, look up, up, look up. Um, you know what a, a real juicy uh, tidbit is? There's a rumor that I think Richard Pryor fucked Marlon Brando. I think. I don't know if I've ever seen Richard Pryor in oh. any kind of <laughs> role. Him, uh, him and uh, Gene Wilder acted together in a lot in a lot of comedies in like the 70s, 60s, I think. Maybe 80s. Super funny. Hear No Evil, See No Evil was really funny, I think it was. Something like that. Oh, wow. Okay, we're, we're going to do some history. Um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I also, I literally, while you were talking about the books, I was like, you ever heard any of those books? <laughs> yeah. um, so. I've, I've heard of Hemingway, of course, but yeah. I've never heard of For Whom the Bells Toll. Oh, it's a great song by Metallica. For whom the bell tolls, time marches on. We'll probably have to cut that because of, um, you know, how uh, copywriting yeah, works. They're going to sue They us. sue fast, yeah. Oh, damn it. it. Oh yeah, they're they're already on it. That was less than five seconds. <laughs> yeah. well, oh, good. We're in. As your eye lawyer, I highly suggest. <laughs> oh, we're safe. Get out of here, Lars Ulrich. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, saying back to it. Okay. John's mother worshipped the idea of hard work. Willie Mae Carter married Eddie Lewis, and they worked as sharecroppers together. They had ten children all together: Aura, Edward, Adolph, William, Ethel, Freddie. Samuel, Henry, Rosa, and John. Is that in order? I'm going to say yes. Guess... <laughs> <laughs> Prove me In wrong. no particular order. <laughs> Prove me wrong, audience. <laughs> Part of growing up... I was just I... asking, just in case John was the youngest. I don't know. I don't I know think, why that would matter. I, I, but... I don't think he was. Uh, I, I think I put him last for, uh, for effect. I don't believe he was the youngest all, overall. But he was younger. I do love the, the different names of the time, so... Yeah, you know, like Ethel. Some of these names we just do not hear anymore. Aura. What's up, Aura? What's up, Ethel? Rosa. Oh, Rosa's clean. So cute. 
Yeah, we have some roses because of uh, the Spanish population in LA. We have some rose oh, yeah, action. Right. Yeah, Rosa, Rosalita, Rosalie. There's some good ones. That's beautiful. Yeah, Rose, Rosalie's beautiful. I, I like that one a lot. Part of growing up in Pike County, Alabama, included picking cotton day after day with the burning sun reminding you this will be repeated tomorrow. Rows of cotton with what John described as literally back-breaking labor. At 62 years old, his mother was still working the same fields diligently. It wasn't the labor that bothered him the most. It was the clampdown on growth and upward mobility that gave him the most grief. The redundancy of hard labor with limited results can be numbing. Farmers risk their families' livelihoods during each cycle of planting and harvesting because you're fighting the weather. You're betting on this this yield coming through. I've never had to think about you know, this idea that, like, they cared. They needed stuff to grow, you know? Yeah. Like, it was, it was literally their, you know, like, they needed it to grow, so they had to really invest in, like, ugh, that must be so stressful. And it was a family effort. You're going to see how that works. And you're going to end this, you're going to trip out on how this broke down economically. It's going to blow your mind. It was this exploitation of labor that created this no way out feeling. By the end of the day's yield, roughly a fifth of a ton of cotton sold for 35 cents per hundred pounds, less than $2 total. This is what John Lewis's parents were actually earning when he was born in 1940. John would argue with his mother that they were essentially working for nothing, breaking even at best, and she would quit back at him that talking against work at all was aggravating and negatively affecting to one spirit. Spiritual strength was an absolute cornerstone in the character of John Lewis. His mother's strength of spirit is what embodied the civil rights movement to come. To John, for anyone to carry, that spirit was to be unbreakable. A spirit that wasn't created but passed across generations. She would repeat a phrase she heard constantly from her grandfather, Frank Carter. Back in slavery times. Ooh, I got a chill saying that. Ooh. Frank Carter was born into slavery, and while his parents did own a small farm in Pike County as of 1880, it was sold for reasons that'll never be known. Maybe white capping. You know, we don't right. know. Like, why, why would you sell? I mean, yeah. When John's parents met, they quickly fell in love. One year later, Shorty and Sugarfoot got married in 1932. That's what they affectionately called each other, Peyton. And though other folks would call them Willie and Buddy, you know, they called each other Shorty and Sugarfoot. It's so cute. In 1936, they had their first child, Aura, and four years later, John Lewis was born. So there's our answer in, in the lineage. He's actually on the older side. Aura. I don't remember hearing that name. That's a very pretty name, Isn't too. Isn't it? Yeah. You got a nice Aura to you, Aura. <laughs> and Cager was never invited back to the John Lewis family home. <laughs> there were countless times in his life when John drove across the Alabama state line down the six-lane highway to go back to his roots and pay tribute to family on special occasions. He would see the changing of times like former farms that had become developments. He'd see familiarity of billboards and the walls of local kudzu covering entire sides of abandoned barns. That's a kind of plant that grows on walls and all over. It kind of like has this ability to grow vertically in all weird ways. And he felt the haunting when passing through Tuskegee. The ideal of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s beloved community constantly guiding him. The beloved community was a core foundation of what John Lewis's social gospel was all about, his iconic good trouble. And interestingly enough, I don't remember reading the words good trouble in this memoir. 
found. Yeah, that iconic phrase that everyone knows, it it actually didn't come up necessarily in this memoir directly. It was beloved community, social gospel. That's what's on repeat here. Hmm. I was, I, we did move quickly around it though, but this idea of like um, spiritual strength really caught me. Yeah. I didn't know how much, you know, I didn't know if we were talking about it again or what. But Oh, um, plenty. Oh, the stories um, we're we're gonna talk about marches. We're gonna talk about protests. We're gonna talk about the violence they faced and the passive resistance by standing up to it and just not reacting by not not it, not following up a punch with a punch, a curse with a curse, and instead practicing this this incredible strength of spirit. It is gonna be this is the overlaying principle. It's gonna be everything we talk about. I'm so glad you you mentioned this. Perfect. Yeah, I can't wait then. Oh. In my head, I'm just like, you're a white person. You you just need to let the fucking story be told and not like... No. You know what's cool is John Lewis said, hey, if you want to help and be a part, help out. He he was on the, uh, Stokely Carmichael and others in like the 60s were very much about like black movement, black power, you know, black panthers, black, you know... Um, all that, you know, um, nationalism, black nationalism. John Lewis was like, if you want to help, we need numbers. Like, <laughs> like I don't care what you look right. like. Yeah. Um, so he would say to you, you're awesome. And he'd say, fuck yeah. <laughs> Maybe not fuck yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Uh, direct quote right in the book. <laughs> the word poor was not in... <laughs> The word poor was not in the Lewis family lexicon growing up. Life itself was a rich experience. The first house he grew up in had a kind of safety bubble around it, in part because of Alabama's geopolitics of the time. That enabled him to value the richness of daily life in his earliest years, to appreciate his family and friends and the impact of community, even as a child, but especially later in reflection. And when I say Alabama's geopolitics, it's that there's these little communities peppered out throughout all these wooded areas. And so there's so much forest, so many woodlands, so many uh, like hills and little areas and things like that, right? And so the, his community was kind of protected from the broader racism around the country and things like that. Mm. Yeah, it created a certain style of living for him. And it's interesting that he reflects on like the first five years of his life as this romanticized peacefulness. It's very interesting. His parents took a profoundly important step forward when they purchased a house with ample land, about 110 acres of wooded, rolling land, and the highest ceilings young John had ever seen. He makes a point to describe the Alabama heat and the Alabama sun again and again, with good reason. And Peyton, you're going to yeah, read a quote from To Kill a Mockingbird for us, if you don't mind. Before that, I would like to comment on the sun. Mm. Um, I imagine it's similar, you know, here in Louisiana, like it was back then. Recently, I went to the beach and I was dumbfounded by the fact that sitting on the beach had like a two, two point lower heat index than like just going walk out of my door into my <laughs> yard. <laughs> um... I don't know. That was just Jeez. crazy. I mean, I, I expected the beach was like the sand and like the water and all that to be pretty potent. Like blistering, huh? Yeah. Um, but no, it's the South is just so humid and so 
hot yeah um it's rough i mean here in in like south louisiana where hurricane ida hit people are dying and all of the deaths are either because of generators uh, carbon monoxide poisoning people Um, trying to stay cool or actual heat exhaustion jeez that's terrible so the heat is literally nothing to play with and i would imagine as a person working in the like in a field for hours upon hours it is right just as rough exactly just beating down on you relentlessly that sun yeah and when was the air condition invented like did they were they able to go into the air condition you know no after their (laughs) 12 hours of work I can tell you uh, the first modern air conditioner was invented in 1902, but that was in New York, and I doubt they made it down to the right. south like that. They surely weren't in, in rural Alabama, probably, until right. the 1950s at right. least, you know? Honestly, I'm thinking God. of block of ice in the house with, like, a fan or something. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you, like, if you don't have air conditioning, if your body is, like, somehow used to the idea of the heat, but, oh, my God, that sounds... That sounds really unappealing to say. I think the, the body like can adapt. Sounds... Yeah, I think you have something right. where the body can adapt and you can toughen up, but then we also would never shy away from comfort. <laughs> like right. naturally we I would, would be we'd drift ha- towards distraught. comfort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if it's like it hey, would be rough. Yeah, it's like you live in the sun like you're saying, you you build that up in the south and then you suddenly are in like an air conditioned place and you have the option of tenting outside, you're gonna take the air conditioning probably. You know, it's right. Yeah, you know, but still, there, there might be one weirdo like me who tries to be opposite. You know, play opposite day, but uh, <laughs> Oof. yeah, jeez. And so this is going to be a quote uh, that Peyton's going to read from "To Kill a Mockingbird." Bony mules hitched to Hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks on the square. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock naps and nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. Mm. So yeah, that sounds like uh, the collars, you know, wilting from the sweat. You know, ladies having to bathe like eight times a day just from the ridiculous heat. Yeah, it sounds like Alabama, you know, it makes sense why it's regarded as having the worst heat in the nation. You know, it's it's legends like this. Yeah, and it's hot at night, too, so that's even, oh. you know, Oof. it's like... Yeah, we get some of that in Los Angeles, but it's a different kind of heat. The soundtrack for the Lewis family in the 1940s included gospel radio megastars Pilgrim Travelers, The Soulsters, The Five Blind Boys of Mississippi. What do you think? Are you uh, Do you spin any of these records ever? Oof, it's been a while. Yeah, you know, sometimes I get down with the Pilgrim Travelers. If I really want to get funky and really break a beat and just, just dance my heart out, you know, dance my chubby little heart out, then, you know, I might throw in some Pilgrim Travelers and, and get weird. Yeah, I'll be Spotifying these after we finish tonight. <laughs> well, you know what's really cool about this, honestly? It's a random side note, but John emphasized this. This music genre that these were a part of became rhythm and blues. One of my hands down. I love the blues. I'm a muddy, muddy wa- I'm a muddy waters disciple, Howlin' Wolf. Uh, but this music genre became rhythm and blues and morphed into soul. Wow. 
Before discovering books at school, young John Lewis would primarily read the Sears Roebuck catalogs to the point of dreaming about the merchandise pencil sketches on each page. He would dream about the images he would see in there. Yeah, that was kind of his, uh, you could see he was dreaming about acquiring, about coming up, about, about more. Right. Um, that's, that's, it's like literally a vision board. Exactly. (laughs) But like in his head. (laughs) It's a, it's a night, it's a dream vision board made out of the magazine. Yeah. Some people would call that manifesting, I think. Exactly. Bingo. They had two churches that were each attended once a month, Macedonia Baptist and Dunn's Chapel AME. If the weather wasn't cooperative, traveling a few miles to church became a full-on expedition for this deeply rural community. So imagine just mud and having having to truck the children along, you know, and and they're halfway down in the mud because they're, you know, a little a little one, you know. Uh, so it it was a journey sometimes. Yeah. yeah, I often go outside and just stand outside and uh, South Louisiana and just like I, I, I immediately have sympathy for the people that came before me because yeah. it's like mosquitoes everywhere, it's hot, it's like there's it's a rough environment and and that's you know that's in a world where they like spray mosquito stuff from planes and stuff it's like you know it's like that's i don't know if they've done that recently but like they have done that that's wild Um, what yeah so it's like you know you know we i guess i would assume that our mosquitoes are to some more degree controlled um and i'm sure back then where the wetlands were actually wetlands and hmm. we hadn't right. destroyed the environment a little yet. more full of of what they were i guess more wet huh <laughs> yeah, yeah i you know it, uh, but it, it had to be it. just brutal territory like you're saying yeah exactly it's i'm 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 just in this place where i'm like oh my god it was so I don't know. I'm so glad I got born later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I look at, I've seen photos of where I'm at, the streets that I walk. And a hundred years ago, it was farmland, you know, and I'm over where, uh, you know, uh, in the past, I've driven past like a house that Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, you know, from I Love Lucy that they purchased, you know, back in like the 50s, 60s, whatever it was, you know, and they bought the house and around them, it wasn't all the homes, it was farms and open land and, and stuff like that. And it's like, it you know, it's really trippy to hear people talk about, yeah, when I grew up, these were all orchards. And I'm like, what do you mean? This mini mall? What, that, no, it's a mini mall. What do you mean? What you mean they sold orange juice here? Like what? <laughs> like, what's an orchard? One of those that always hits me is the people at my church. Mm. Um, it's a, a very old black church and, mm. um, it's existed for a while and the, the, my pastor that is still there is like 36 years into it so he's been there for a while yeah and he talks about how like there used to be so much people that show up and now uh, there's not very many people that attend mm. and he says that there's like miles of cane fields around the church um and he said that they used to be mostly houses um, and though he has never said this, I would assume that those houses housed mostly black people or other people of color. So, you yeah. know, 
they probably got a different form of white capping of get out of the land so gentrified out or something or, yeah it was right. developed or repurposed but it's yeah it's really insane just to hear it's really um disgusting to hear that like we just destroy land mm. i mean i i know that's a different it's like we took houses and put sugarcane on it but sugarcane that like it's not good for the environment we burn it and it literally hurts people that are around it we spray chemicals all over it it's not like, being sustainably farmed in any way it sounds like yeah and i'm sure back in the 1950s or whatever it was even less mm, you know right. less oversight you know, like, less awareness yeah and like who took care of the fields yeah. probably you know yeah. what i mean it's and, like and it's isn't just... the point of sustainability about co-joining nature and people to where if you remove people for the sake of farming isn't that kind of a little bit not the point of sustainability because it's about people and environment together not one or the other so i yes i but... feel like while ai and stuff like that is very helpful and like sustainable farming and whatnot i do agree that like the point of it is like to connect with your food source and like connect with these things that uh, we're so disconnected from nowadays um yeah like where our meat comes from it's like we don't even know it's probably some abused meat though well um, so, uh, supposedly uh impossible is those impossible meats they're bringing out like chicken nuggets soon and all that that and like the CEO was like, we're at a this inflection. It's like it's not about the fact that we're launching chicken nuggets. It's the fact that we're at an inflection point where people are actively saying they want food that's based. They want meat based in plants over like this iconic animal, you know. And that was like almost his exact quote. And it's like, dang, that stuck with me. Like, okay, I I think uh, there's some positivity for you that there is some th there's a movement in itself with with food culture. Absolutely. I, I personally yeah. think that a lot of our our societal issues are stemming from this idea that our food is so abused. Like, if our food source is tainted with trauma, and I don't know how it's expected for us to not be in that same place. You're not the only person who's mentioned that to me recently, and I know you've brought that up before, and I love this conversation, and we, we got to keep this going in another, uh, <laughs> and, and like, we, we got to really like have a, a deep dive into this, and maybe we'll talk about a food scientist or something to really open that conversation up more, because um, I want to hear all your takes. You, if anyone out there wants environment, environmentalism knowledge, um, things like that, Peyton is on the way up. Uh, keep an eye on her, follow her on Twitter, uh, look out because she is a part of this this future movement this food culture movement I, I consider you absolutely a part of this because you're you're very much uh if nothing else and you are a lot else you're you're starting an organization you're doing but what i'm saying is you are with everything else you're also a philosopher in in ways you you have ideas and you're very uh you're very actively thinking about solutions to these things and, and i respect the hell out of that it's very uh, invigorating too for me I appreciate that. I recently yeah. decided that I think I want my minor to be in food insecurity. Ooh. Um, and I Get feel it, like girl. this conversation is making me be like, yeah, that is exactly what I want to do. Yeah, get him. I punched my headphones, but get him. <laughs> <laughs> Young John loved church. The excursions were a joy. 
the Sunday best clothing was a delight, and he even formed a lifelong joke at church one Sunday when he called his mother Mrs. Lewis in jest. Hey, Mrs. Lewis, like that's kind of cute, right? Has a little like <laughs> a little dude doing that to his mom. It's kind of silly. Two of his aunts, who never, never missed church, he said, turned to John's mom and remarked how the joke was kind of weird. And for John, this marked the first time that he felt himself as different from others in a positive and kind of odd way. He's quirky, you know, he's he's idiosyncratic. Yeah, when you have that moment of like, I am a being, I am an individual, and I can do that, that's... Peyton can see I have my feeling. hand up right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you already know, Peyton, you know me. We've, we've talked for several, several hours at this point. Uh, yeah, I think you can, I think we got a little, maybe we both got a little bit of something, something. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> The music and spirit from every person in church, regardless of social class or strife, uplifted John, and the improvisational nature of his pastors was so inspiring. But it was the chickens, the chickens, that ultimately showcased who a young John Lewis would become as a civil rights leader. The chickens. Hang with me here. Okay, the absolute purity, the unmitigated innocence of the chickens compared to the other animals on the family's farm is what drew John to them. In them, he saw defenseless creatures that demonstrated grace over weakness. The rest of his family saw stupid birds, but at five years old, John recognized their outcast status and bonded with them as he oversaw their care. All 60 of those chickens. Looking back, he recognizes how he learned from this patience, diligence, discipline. And of course, his family thought he was weird, right? Idiosyncratic, quirky John here. He preached to the chickens nightly. Big Bell and Lil Pullet were two names of his chickens. And I think it was Lil Pullet that was his... No, okay, I think it was Big Bell that was his favorite. And I think Lil Pullet got stuck in a well for five days. And they finally lowered a basket <laughs> down for the bird and the, for, with some breadcrumbs. And the bird just hopped in and they saved it. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, Big Bell and Lil Pullet with Lil John. <laughs> uh, so John Lewis, who jokingly called his mom Mrs. Lewis, became known to the family as Preacher. Because he's preaching to the chickens. And so this is not like the graphic novel preacher, uh, the show with Dominic Cooper with all the vampires and stuff. This is a normal preacher. I love that. He uh, he started preaching so early. My, yeah. my pastor said that he gave his first... He started preaching at five years old, too. So it's like... Yeah. I guess when you got it, you got it. <laughs> that's that's so cool. The parallel. Oh, it's, it's just in his bones. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know if he was preaching to chickens or people. I'm sure it was a combination <laughs> as well, but, you know. Yeah, hey, you know. <laughs> I, that's that. that's just funny. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's cool to think of other people in that same, in that same vein, with that same passion that, like you said, just, just, it just, they got it. At six years old, John shifted to working in the fields. And so the joy that preacher got from caring for the chickens was ultimately replaced with the daily grind of survival. And you had talked about the farming and all that took. This is where we're going to talk about the family farm and what it took to run it. Black farm owners in 1950s Alabama knew nothing better than cotton. The tedious, grinding, monotonous rhythm of cotton, as John describes it. The seasons turned, and by age 12, John was working the plow solo. After the planting season came the Alabama sun. Chopping cotton was an infinite job, and dropping soda or fertilizing left you exhausted with swollen, cut-up hands. Picking cotton required constant bending down, 
up to 10 hours a day. And you mentioned some people would make like slides on their knees and they'd slide around all day, but that creates a whole different, you know, it's like either way you're, you're grinding. It's ridiculous labor. I mean, standing up straight for 10 hours a day doing anything is still like exhausting labor. Yeah. So being awesome 10 hours a day is brutal. I gotta tell you, <laughs> it's not, I'm, I'm such a dork. I, to everyone that knows, I'm, I'm a bigger nerd than that. And with the tenant arrangement that was in place, a white family named the Copelands was on the other end of this sharecropping deal. So they took half of the Lewis family's cotton promptly each time. Then they deducted whatever John's dad owed them for the supplies they provided to plant the cotton in the first place. The remainder then entirely went to the Lewis family. All little whatever's left. Just so ridiculous. And at six years old, John Lewis saw the inequity in this. And one thing opened a door out of this cycle. School. Can you, uh, TLDR, like, what is sharecropping? Yeah, so sharecropping is the practice of when uh, a family works the land, like John Lewis's family would. Then there would be other people who provided them the seeds, who provided them the necessities to get that crop going. And they would say, all right, now that this crop is done, we're going to take our portion because we invested in this yield. It, they're technically, they would consider themselves like investors. Who was the Copelands. Who owned the land? In this one, uh, the Lewis family owned the land, but they didn't have the okay. means to uh, to like work uh, to get all the seeds going, to get all the crops going. Right. And so they needed the equipment, they needed all the stuff, and boom, that's how you had this extended this extension of the inequities of slavery that perpetuate, you know, this economic, you know, bullshit. Right. Yeah, I almost I almost got a little too wordy there. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, of course. it's it, it frustrates me that this happened. And I mean, it set us back as a country so much. And so many generations of incredible people are being held back by these these historical systems, you know, and it and it it, it frustrates me, but it lets me know that we can fix it for the current and future, you know, and that's what what keeps right. me from being only upset about it. John's first school was a small wooden building with a painted green a, with a painted green roof and a flimsy interior wall that created the appearance of two rooms. The first three grades were in one room, and the rest of the grades were in the other. His mother attended this school and his grandparents' generation before her. It was actually built by Julius Rosenwald around 1900 as part of a larger philanthropic effort to provide educational opportunities to black children. Rosenwald was a Sears Roebuck owner. That same dream catalog, dream journal, uh, 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 vision board, the same vision board that you talked about, you know, that was uh, the one that John dreamed about as a kid. The owner built a school John attended. So it wasn't yeah. all bad. There were some people out there who were doing some cool things, you know, and I mean, in terms of crossing the, the racial lines <laughs> and philanthropy and things like that. Right. That is cool. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, at least at least there was one. We we can count one at least that had, you know, the right side of history on their mind. The classroom had an Alabama flag, which a young John found majestic, but no American flag, which he found kind of weird. Families provided the school supplies. There was no funding except for just enough to pay their teacher, one teacher who taught all the grades. John was a sloppy writer. And I remember reading one time, Peyton, that some really intelligent people write poorly because their hands don't keep up with their brain. Yeah, but John did love every aspect of school. He really did. And learning to write was a thrilling experience for him. 
He was shy and self-conscious until he began a presentation. Then he felt connected to his audience, and he felt the same comfort he had when preaching to his chickens. Oh, little bell. Uh, what is it? Uh, little pullet and big bell. I already forgot. <laughs> Third grade is when John Lewis learned the names and stories of Joe Lewis, Booker T. Washington, Mary McLeod Bethune, and George Washington Carver. His first field trip out of Pike County was to the Tuskegee Institute to witness a laboratory like George Washington Carver had experimented in. And George Washington Carver is known as like inventing peanut butter. He invented so much. He, it's, it's insane. He did so... He, he was a busy guy. Pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> the influence beyond Pike County was taking hold. Home always stayed close to John over time, too. The pull of home and the appeal of the world were like two parallel tracks that coexisted cleanly within him. Troy, Alabama was a town that always knew how to fight. When the town was founded in the 1830s, they immediately got to work on building a jail. After Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in April of after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865, a local business owner made a white marble monument that was dedicated to the assassin John Wilkes Booth. It stayed up at that business owner's front yard until he died, and I think it moved to the cemetery with him after that. And John Lewis wrote his memoir in the late 90s when the Confederate flags were still big in Troy, Alabama. Wow. Right? I never thought about people idolizing John Wilkes Booth. It's a weird one to choose. Out of all the, you had a lot of options here. <laughs> but I mean, if you're that racist, it's like, I mean, white marble is an expensive material. It's like, that's way too much commitment. It, it, a lot of commitment. It's like, he's a real tryhard in, in the worst of ways. <laughs> Uh, oh, also, he's like a racist douchebag, probably. But, you know, but a real tryhard. That's what I'm upset okay. about. <laughs> Almost definitely. I feel like it's safe to say. At Bird's Drugs, the local pharmacy, young John could buy a hand-mixed Coca-Cola like anyone else. But black people were strictly forbidden from sitting at the tables or up at the counters. A bench outside of the drugstore was his makeshift hangout spot. Other memories linger with John as he matured in Troy. The bathroom marked white was remarkably clean, while the bathroom for black people was a decrepit and disgusting place. The difference in quality and sanitation between the two water fountains, chrome versus rust. The public library, a vehicle to worlds beyond Troy, which did not allow black people in. That one hurt John so much because reading was his favorite part of school. To bar black people from a library is like the most telling version of like nailed it you nailed it girl segregation or whatever we're afraid you're gonna is. you're gonna be smarter than us <laughs> yeah exactly it's like wow no, you can't read we're scared of that like what yeah it's remarkable in its stupidity isn't it and and, and hatred yeah and hatred absolutely this journey is gonna be a trip peyton there is a lot to come oh get ready girl this whole movement, it's it, it's it, it's almost uh, thrilling. Isn't the right word. It's captivating, and, and I, I can't wait to share some of this with you as well. I wish I had like a civil rights timeline in front of me. I'm like, is this in the time of separate but equal? 
We're going to get to that. Before that. that. We're, we're literally getting to that. No, you always do this. You always <laughs> nail it. You know my scripts. You know how, you know, like the history. Enough. I didn't even you, read it. You didn't. You know references. Like you, you, uh, synchronicity. Synchronicity. I love it. Oh. And and you're just in tune. That's why I, I hype you up so much. You really are a great thinker. Your mind is just remarkable. Um, oh, Woo, I can't wait to do that food episode with you on food science. But yes. so there was Love Street, which had a couple blocks of black owned businesses like a barber shop and a beauty parlor. Love Street was named after the eccentric local character from the 1830s and Dowdell Love, who and Dowdell Love is phenomenal, wild character. She would roam the streets with a whip and a butcher knife as she encouraged the drunks and riffraff around the courthouse to go to church. Yep. She sounds like a fun lady. Honestly, might be my best friend in town if I was there. Like, yeah, the eccentrics intrigue me. Young John Lewis was forbidden by his mother, Mrs. Lewis, to go to Love Street. And I think that was because of the nightclubs that were there, and that had her considering the entire section, quite frankly, as a dive in a den of sin. She had a very strong well, take on Love Street. She felt similarly to Mrs. Ann Dowdell Love as well, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. As the 1950s progressed, John became more sounds aware like, of... I was going to say, it sounds like bourbon. Like, what I know about bourbon. Bourbon like Street? idea. Yeah, sorry. Oh, oh, you're talking in the local parlance. You know, I'm an outsider over I'm here. Just, <laughs> I forget that there is... And, and it's Love Street, which is even more telling. Yeah, about, Love like, Street. Yo, it's... Yeah. I expect bad things there. occur. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't go to Love Street and avoid, whatever you do, avoid Universal Peace Avenue. Right. <laughs> I, I thought my joke was funnier than that. Damn, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to make you laugh. <laughs> it wasn't a good joke. You're right. I need to do better. <laughs> as the 1950s progressed, John became more aware of the rest of the U.S. as relatives and siblings made their way back to Pike County from places like Detroit and Newark. Ah, the vast and mythical land of Newark. Just Where is Newark? Uh, New Jersey. Oh, uh, I should have known that. Yeah, that's, that's when I should have known. The, the mythical lands of, of New Jersey. <laughs> uh, but up north, you know, there was a certain allure to it, right? John began to dream more about the equality and equity northern states appeared to provide, like white and black children in the same schools. And we're making our way towards what you had mentioned with separate but equal. We're on our way there. At about nine years old, the concept of moving north became something of an obsession. Oh, but real quick, there's a great story of young John Lewis. He's nine years old, right, Peyton? And oh my gosh, okay, this is so adorable. Uh, and it, and it's, it's telling. You used the word telling earlier for a different reference to the library and keeping black people out. This one too. John Lewis goes into the woods with his cousin, and the two of them are out there with a saw. And they're intent on finding a big-ass tree to cut down so they can make a bus and ride the hell out of Alabama. Wow. It, it's it's wow. such a good story. I don't know. I, I love that one. I love, I mean, that's really upsetting that he felt like he needed to leave Alabama, but I, I guess I really appreciate that at least he was in a space where he was able to have an imagination still and, like, have that kind of fun through it all, yeah. I guess. Yeah, you nailed it with the imagination, that ability to dream. You know, there's a certain power in being able to dream, being able to see something out of nothing. Exactly. 
1951, John's Uncle Otis took him up north for the first time. John is convinced that at this point, his uncle saw something that John didn't yet see within himself. And that is why Uncle Otis took him, in particular, on this inspiring trip. Once they drove out of Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky, and into Ohio, Uncle Otis was able to drive a little bit more relaxed. And you, you get what I'm saying there. Once you're out of right. the South, you know, if for anyone who uh, has anyone who is not black and has spoken with black friends or, or family or anything like that, you know, uh, they may have ever referenced an idea in some parts of driving while black being a crime. You know, and I've heard that in recent times and situations as well. John rode an escalator for the first time. That, that, that's a funny one to me. It's so interesting. The technology, you know, the automation, you know, he saw Niagara Falls. Yeah. I'm sure it was a completely different world. I mean, yeah. oh my Lord. You know I mean, what? I know yeah. now in 2021, it feels like Louisiana is still like 20 years behind, like other places in the country maybe even right. more depending on where you're comparing it to right so i'm i'm sure back then where information and all that did not spread nearly as quickly it was like 50 60 80 years behind just yeah you're so right it's a time warp yeah he's stepping through like a time loop mm. they went outdoor uh so they went to an outdoor market he shopped like anyone else in a big city. And by the time the trip ended, he desperately missed home and he was never the same again. John started to notice that all black men and women greeted white people, men, women, and children with sir, ma'am, mister, missus. But the respect was never reciprocated. The roads in his black community weren't paved. This created real logistical issues with rainy weather. You know, we talked about uh, churches, you know, going to church and how it'd be a trek for families. Well, when it rained hard enough, you know, from torrential, torrential downpours, the kids would have to get out and help push the bus in these black communities. On the way to school, the ever-present prison work gangs that did road maintenance consisted of only black prisoners. The noticeable inequities began to stack up, and classrooms enabled a young John to escape them. Sometimes the the quote-unquote prison gangs still are only black people here in louisiana mm. um something i noticed when i sometimes they're like picking up road litter or doing lawn work or something like that i mm -hmm. notice um i live fairly close to like a sheriff's station um so i'll see people and i'm always like dumbfounded how they're like almost all black or i'll notice they're all white hmm. which i feel like in both ways is telling interesting in different ways yeah that's an interesting because separation. it's a privilege i understand at least it's a privilege to like be able to leave be able to see the world that you're like right. kept away from right so you know it's like certain jobs would be yeah. an escape a vacation from jail exactly oh, okay gotcha Interesting. Yeah, I really didn't think that far with it. That's that's a really good point. I mean, it oh. it just speaks to how like the like the systems of slavery have just shifted from like you know slowly or maybe not even that slowly, but like it has just pivoted yeah. to like 
the prison industrial complex. Um, uh, oh, now yeah. that, you know, white capping is not as acceptable, though I feel like it probably does still happen in a different form without, um, I guess, the legal backup that it had, right. uh, as I understand back then. Yeah, well, I think a lot of times we see it in legislation. We see it in big money from like one percenter groups that aren't representative of uh, voting populations and things like that, where small sectors of big money are able to make decisions for the whole, you know? Um, I think that can lead to inequities that then create systems of racism, systems of, you know, of what you're talking about with like the prison industrial complex where these laws enable these prisons to thrive things like that you know and it's big Absolutely. money from big groups that support very extreme ideas you know on far typically right now we're seeing it on the far right where i think it's like the heritage foundation some some like that this extreme group and they're like behind a huge part of the voting rights push and other things that and they're giving scripts to people on here's how you do this in the state and and they're funding a ton of it and uh and we'll get into voting rights stuff a plenty later. Ooh, it's going to be good when we do talk about it, Peyton. So work in the field came before school, even though John's parents did want better for him. Work in the field did mean continued survival, right? But he began to hide from his parents in the morning so he could race to the school bus before his parents could force him to work the land. His father would scold him, but never whipped him, demanded that he not skip work in the field again, and then John would do it again. He was meant for something else. Uh, yeah. I I imagine it's very difficult to get a child to work a field. I mean, I I don't want to call him a child. I do assume he's younger right here, though. Yeah, no, he's still young here. He's definitely still young. And this is where we get into what you were talking about with Separate But Equal. Here we go. In his second year of high school, John was leading towards either preaching or studying law, and he was committed to doing either one outside of Pike County. He began reading black journals and writings from around the country in his school library. He read a 1954, <sighs> woo, he read a 1954 Supreme Court decision that completely rocked his world. Brown versus the Board of Education. Separate but equal was unconstitutional. It wasn't a flip switch where suddenly every segregationist respected the change of law. We know that's not the case. Instead, dreams of integration were dashed by Alabama politicians calling the day Brown versus the Board of Education was decided as Black Monday. White citizens' councils, who comprised of Ku Klux Klan members with suits instead of hoods, began to emerge in nearby states to fight the Supreme Court ruling. KKK marches and midnight cross burnings were being reported all across Alabama. Stories outside of Pike County told of horrific beatings and abuses that couldn't easily be verified with how slowly news traveled compared to now. And that, for me, the slowness of that news travel just adds to the terror in so many ways. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It creates almost this, I'm not saying it was false, but this mythology around the reality. It, it's like a hat on a hat, right. but a dragon on a dragon, you know? It's, right, it's a warped perception. Yeah. It's going to get, it's, it gets wild, but there's so much hope in between all this. 
One Sunday morning in 1955, the voice of a young minister from Atlanta broke through the radio John was listening to. A strong, deep, rhythmic cadence that was entrancing and in a style of Baptist whooping. The cadence was mesmerizing, and at the end of the sermon, John Lewis finally heard the name Martin Luther King Jr. This sermon was Paul's letter to the American Christians. The streets of Montgomery, Alabama required focus and action on the present racial injustice, not just a focus on getting to heaven. This minister was speaking a social gospel, a method to act now to improve the lives of so many, instead of applying a passive acceptance that every minister before would focus on. Social gospel is a beautiful phrase. Isn't it? And, and Good Trouble doesn't really show up in this memoir. Social gospel does over and over. Yes. I'm so glad you picked up on that. I, yes, it's so... I, uh, I agree. <laughs> it also is like bringing me back to my church, or not my church, but the church I attend. Um, because, it's, it, I mean... There's a there's an altar prayer that they do like every um every sermon where um they you know pray for like healing and stuff but usually they also mention like we pray for the government and they don't mention like anyone's name or mm. anything like that it's literally usually that phrase like we pray for the government yeah. you know we pray for um jails we pray for people in prison we pay for all of these things it's like like it's their form of the social gospel yeah um, and trying to pray um, i love it for thing let's start other, with rather this, than just yeah let's start with this idea and let this be the spark that creates your version of change for this something like right. that. yeah no i remember that from my time you know way back before when i would attend churches a while ago oh, a long while ago now but i remember that and that was something that stood out to me and something that i that really drew me in was that action that that active want to help yeah this differentiation i don't know if uh, John Lewis made it, or if this is you, but this differentiation of like the religious focus on action versus just getting to heaven. That's, I feel like that is like literally the difference here in Louisiana. Not everyone is religious, but of course, you know, religion is declining and etc. But like, I would say, like, we have a large, I mean, we're in the South, we're, we're the Bible Belt, we're, a lot of people are religious here, but, um, you know, for, for the religious people, I, that's what I've noticed, it's like, mm. it's the people that are focused on, like, you know, like, here and now, and like, you know, love thy neighbor kind of a ideology, yeah, definitely. versus people that are just like, you're going to hell, and I want to go to heaven, yeah, little, and this is how I'm gonna do controlling. it. <laughs> right, it's yeah. it's it really is like two different ideologies, you could call it. Like diametrically opposed. Yeah, yeah. and 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 yeah, and I won't. I guess I won't go too far into it, but like, I feel like in Christianity, yeah. it definitely, in my opinion, teaches to focus on action and healing and loving and connection and community um and not just getting to heaven um yeah which i you know it's about the journey 
you know, uh, Hunter Thompson yeah. in a non-religious, you know, twist here, Hunter Thompson would say, buy the ticket, take the ride. And I think what you're mm-hmm. talking about is it, that's the kind of religion I can relate to is what you're talking about, right? is what John's talking about. And to, to your earliest point, um, not me. That was not mine. I will not take credit for John's uh, ideas, works. Absolutely, I will not be that guy. Um, but but I did I did emphasize it because it absolutely stood out to me. Yeah, that's, that's why I brought it up. It, it obviously was yeah. something that was differentiated enough that you picked up on it. So it's like, oh, yeah, yeah and... And, and that's what fucking religion is all about. Oh, yeah. That's my... <laughs> I love my, that. That's my wrap-up on that. I love like, that. If, Perfect. If Dismount. your religion ain't teaching this, then it's... There's a problem. Oh, I love it with a little with a little bit of style, a little bit of flair on it. That's what fucking religion's all about. Like, I, I like that. <laughs> John began to learn all he could about this new preacher. Resident pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. A graduate of Morehouse College. John wanted to follow in Reverend King's footsteps by attending Morehouse College now. He was drawn in by the gravity of Dr. King, like so many others at the time. But John Lewis didn't know that he was developing his own magnetism that would help bring them together. Prominent segregationists like Senator Strom Thurmond and James Eastland vowed to fight the Supreme Court on their forced integration policies, even to the death. To the death! Extremist language from conservative politicians is not new. It's such, it's so stupid. It's so tired. Isn't it ridiculous? I will will not stand for this. I don't know why I'm making him like an old world British dude or something, but it's (laughs) it's just so like, 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 shut up already. (laughs) I'm I'm like, do y'all care this much about anything else besides black people? Why y'all so obsessed with it? Well, I mean, in a lot of situations, we know know why, but it's like. They feel inadequate. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah. God bless. We're focused on yourself. Yeah. You know, it's really just, it's like you said it earlier with the library thing. It's just so telling. It's like, yeah. it's this uh, reflecting, you know, it's, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but when you're putting it on something, somebody else, you know, projecting, projecting. Thank you. It's, it's absolute projection. You know, it's that kind of thing. And it's projection to the point of sickening the country. You know, like it's, it's like you're poisoning our well of, of, of opportunity of coming together, you know, of just like the neighborly concept of Christianity and things like that. You know, you don't have to be religious. I'm not a practicing religious person. I still have religious friends who let me know religion is still a good thing. Number one. And number two, like we, I can be their friend too and not be practicing and still be a decent person. And believe in because the same ideals. Because, yeah, exactly. It's, because it's about community at the very yeah. the end of the road. Is It's all about community and connecting with one another. Beloved um, community. And, and extremists do not succeed, usually, in connecting with other people. They usually only connect with people... Hmm. That are also extremists in similar ways. Interesting. That's that is. I never thought about that. You're you're so right on. Because it's like there's this philosophy. I forget. It's like Henry David Thoreau, I think. And it's I, I might be off, but it's this idea basically of like eccentrics define society. And when an eccentric comes up with an idea that's outside of the norm, we either reject it 
or we integrate it into society and how we react to that is how society goes. And what you're saying is the extremists are those that constantly get rejected and can't can't integrate into society and can't bring in followers from normal society and they can only find I other mean, stragglers in that outer always sphere. always rejected. I mean, well, nowadays always, but, uh, extremists yeah. are getting real con creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they're walking people You're slowly. Wrong. You're not wrong. Until yeah. they're all the way there. Yeah, it's so But weird. yeah, exactly. I mean, it's that idea of like when you hear an extremist idea and you just kind of clinch up. Yeah. It's like, oh God, what the hell? And then... Right. It's definitely like a, a misalignment of some kind, for sure. Oh yeah, and it's a misalignment that it impacts us all. It throw it. Uh, you, you were going to it where it warps people. It warps people that are susceptible, you know, that are desperate, that are hurting, that are that are wounded. Yeah, all that. Um, I do want to mention we're going to get into a heavier a heavier part here for anyone listening. Uh, so you know, just uh, heads up here. This is a, a heavy part of the story. Emmett Till was 14 years old. Thanks for the old. warning, oh, Yeah, of course. And so, here we go. Emmett Till was 14 years old and visiting Money, Mississippi in August of 1955 when he was brutally murdered. Complimenting a white woman was all it took, and this tragedy shaped John Lewis because he understood that Emmett Till could have been him. It shook him to his core. The emotion that sunk in his gut was diametrically opposed to the pure joy elicited from the Brown versus the Board of Education decision. The innocence of mm -hmm. Emmett Till didn't matter to the jury. The guilty parties were not found guilty. Ooh. I, I, I can't read about Emmett Till or talk about it without just kind of shaking a little bit. You know, I, I really, and it, it, he's, he's one person of, of so many others. Who, who face so much, you know, but it's, it's every single person that I read about. I feel that way, you know, but it's just, um, for John Lewis, he, he really saw himself, you know, in Emmett by the end right. of the night. Oh. Sorry. I just wanted to break your voice up for no. the purpose of recording, but I am speechless. No, I appreciate that. Honestly, thank you. <laughs> by the end of 1955, the movement could be seen on the horizon. Rosa Parks made headlines by refusing to give up her seat at the front of a bus to a white man 50 miles away from Troy, which led to the Montgomery bus boycott. Reverend King then helps to form the Montgomery Improvement Association, which mobilizes the 50,000 black bus riders to boycott the racism of the segregated transit system to resist. Of the like social justice-related history that I am aware of, this is maybe one of the most inspiring, like, uh, not movement, but like projects, just singular focused yeah. um, agenda. I don't know. Like, it is just so inspiring. You know, they were, they were able to mobilize 50,000 yeah. black bus riders that still needed to get where they needed to go. Right. And still did not have... You know, they they still had to find transportation or whatever to get yeah. where they needed to go. So it's like, and, you know, like, it's inspiring because nowadays it's so difficult to get people to, like, sacrifice something to do anything for anyone else besides themselves oh, or yeah. even themselves. Oh, yeah. So it's like, this, it's so inspiring to see that the, you know, to know that these 50,000 people 
you know, I mean, it literally, I guess, life or death, but they understood the, the severity of the situation. Yeah. And they, you know, they, they, they stuck it out for yeah. a good long time, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think the one word, if I had to put it in one word that you're looking for, organizing. <sighs> yes. And resistance. Oh, Successful yeah. resistance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, you nailed it. The 50,000 black bus riders coming together, the way that they put this together as quickly as they did, considering all things, the fact of where everyone came from, all parts, you know, like, yeah. And knowing that it's like, this is in the 1950s where they couldn't just text their friend, like, yo, exactly. don't take the bus. Oh, we're gonna they talk. had to, like, yeah. talk to people. Yeah. And the word had yeah. to spread, and it that's just... It had to go viral ugh. in a completely different way. <laughs> exactly. Like, really, and, and we're going to talk about organizing. We're going to talk about what it took, things they did. We're going to talk later on in a future episode, everybody. And Peyton, you are going to trip. We are going to talk. We're going to do the entire walk, the entire Selma walk uh, for Bloody Sunday. From the church to when they walk over the bridge and what they see and, and what they encounter. We're going to cover it step by step pretty much. So uh, we're going to talk about the organizing. We're going to talk about, oh, it, ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> I think Cadro is finding his inner preacher today. Oh, oh well, I'm, I'm going to figure out some whooping style here. I got to watch some videos. We're going to get going. And I'm going to carry you all up the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> okay. Over the year of boycotting, John Lewis followed it all in the news from home. He became completely fixated with the style of protest. The power of nonviolence overwhelmed him. Like his beloved chickens from his childhood, the passive resistance was a clear strength to learn and to master. At this point, maybe understandably, John wanted to be a preacher more than a lawyer. He focused, he was focused on school, church, and the growing protest movement. He didn't date, though he flirted and wrote sweet notes to some girls in school. He thinks it had a lot to do with not having a driver's license, you know, why he didn't date. He did try to get it, but during the test he got flustered by the driving official who ended the test by degrading him publicly, and this was a real jerk move, when he said, boy, don't come back here till you learn how to drive. 26 years later, John got his driver's license. That's so rude. I'm so glad he got his driver's license. Yeah, that had to feel good. Yeah, yeah, I bet it did. Yep. In February 1956, a few days before John turned 16, he preached his first sermon. This was 12 mm. days after white people rioted over the University of Alabama admitting their first black student, Authorine Lucy. She was expelled before attending a class, quote-unquote, for her safety. Mm. Yeah, me it too. Is. Peyton's like rubbing her head with like that, that like migraine vibe of like, you got to be kidding me. And I agree. I agree, girl. It's re it, mm, her name should be, uh, I mean, again, there it, countless It's the names. same tactic we see nowadays too. It's like, it's for your safety, for their safety. It's like, no. The Black Lives Matter protests, you know, how they brought out the federal forces for everyone's safety when the entire world was joined in the protest and we were the only ones acting like that. Exactly. Yeah, ridiculous. Violence soon hit close to home. 
Two days after John's sermon, a relative named Dr. Brewer was shot seven times by a department store owner that resided below Dr. Brewer's office. The verdict was justifiable homicide. Dr. Brewer was publicly known for working to allow black people to vote in Georgia. The black community believed this was an act of Klan violence. Emmett Till could have been John Lewis, and Dr. Brewer was family to John Lewis. What the hell is justifiable homicide? It's uh, like, it's a way to let him get off. I mean, I, mean, I, you, I, you know. I, I know I mean, what you know. it means, yeah. but I know it's you're like, asking what the fuck question. is that? I'm, sorry. I, I'm frustrated by it, and <sighs> I'm, I'm, I'm lashing out at you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, sometimes they claim self-defense. It's yeah. like, that's that's not justifiable homicide. Right. That's self-defense. That's a whole different thing. Right. And, and that's usually bullshit or whatever, but... Yep. Justifiable homicide. It's like it's cool that you killed someone. And, I'm okay with it. And why did why were you justifiably homiciding a doctor? Yeah, a doctor. That, and also to be a judge or whatever that had to like make that verdict. Yeah, it was like oh, it's justified. Hey, can you give like, me the book? How, how can we rule that this guy gets off, but we still say he killed him? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just. <laughs> How even can you respect yourself and your practice after that? Well, when it's a coordinated effort and when it's a system that fuels right. inequity, in the, you already know. You already know, girl. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a lot of girls today. I got some spice. <laughs> in 1957, John Lewis was accepted to American Baptist College. He was ready to leave Pike County. George Wallace, who was, I believe he was the Alabama governor or running for Alabama governor. He's just a longtime Southern politician, a longtime uh, divisive character, I'll say. He ran a racially charged campaign against Alabama's Attorney General John Patterson, and that ultimately inspired John Lewis to send $1.50, about $15 today, to join the NAACP. He proudly carried his blue and white membership card until it crumbled to pieces over time. And that's where we'll pick back up next time with part two of our walk with John Lewis. When I joined the NAACP, I think I paid more than $15. Oh, snap. So they raised their dues, technically. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was happy to donate the money to the org. but That's um, awesome. But um, yeah. I, I don't know if my membership is still active. But um, Yeah. No, that, but yeah, that's yeah. so cool. It, so, yeah, I, honestly, it's cool because, like, it's the kind of thing with John Lewis where we think these groups are, like, some kind of closed society. It's like, no, just just go talk to the folks in the group and ask, how can I be a part of this if you want to be involved? You will never know if right, you don't exactly. ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Peyton, thanks for I, joining me on this. Yeah, what's up? I was just going to say my general takeaways are... Um, I, I feel like I remind myself of this way too often. Uh, I, I guess my brain tries to forget it because it's so sad to me, but, um, I, I consistently remind myself that this is the exact same thing happening right now. Um, I yeah. mean, it, it, like, literally, exactly... Um, they don't even use different words all of the same time. You know what I mean? Isn't it it's ridiculous? Like, <laughs> this, it, and they're able to be that you know, lazy with their with this racism and with this repetitious 
inequity, you know? It, it's, it's absurd. Yeah. It It's also, like, just enraging because it's like, y'all been trying to do this for, you know, since at least this time period, 70, 60 years. Yeah. The same exact way. And it hasn't... You know, it succeeded in some ways, but it hasn't overall succeeded. So it's like, why just give up? Because we're not. It's not working. Yeah, we're not giving up. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree I so mean, much. Yeah. I, Einstein, if I recall, defined insanity by doing the same thing over and over again. Right. And expecting mm -hmm. a different outcome. It's like... <laughs> Yeah, no, Gotta find a new way to be racist, at least. Yeah, Come if y'all are going to continue to act that way, you're going to get the same result. You're going to the version of your hell that you believe in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Oh, wow. Well, Peyton, uh, again, just thanks for joining me on this. What a trip. But where can all the good people find you? It was an honor to be here with you, Pedro. I can't wait to dig more into John Lewis and... Um, yeah, um, people yeah. can find me on Twitter at Peyton Rose LA. Um, yeah. And where can people find you, Kedro? You know, I haven't been on Twitter for so long. I've taken just extended and surprise, like just mental health, personal health breaks from it. I just haven't been needing the social media right now with just my busy life, but I'll be back on there at voting info HQ soon. Definitely. And uh, yeah, votinginfohq.com. Please check it out. There's a lot more on the way. And uh, just thanks for, for rolling with me. This was a nice long episode, but the journey, it's so important to know where he came from. You know, I think that knowing where John comes from, it tells us where the movement comes from in a lot of ways. His story is that of many. That's that's exactly why I'm so excited to learn more about him and other people like him because um, you know, obviously we didn't get taught this in school for various strategic reasons, and, um, mm. it's important to know, I mean, if we're gonna, you know, I, I personally would like to build a career doing this kind of work, so it's like, I need to know, you know, I need to know who, how it was done before me, so I can We're gonna talk organizing, that. we're gonna talk voting empowerment, we're gonna talk about fighting for equality we're going to talk about all these good things we're going to talk about strategery i can't wait <laughs> uh, and i would like to invite our listeners to go to native-land.ca to find out the indigenous lands that you reside on yeah check it out it's really great um agreed and to everyone practice your peace thank you for listening and keep on resisting. Ooh, do, do you think anyone picked up on the thing with the fireballs and how he sold goods to young John Lewis? Did, did I explain that enough? How the, No, probably not, huh? The fireballs were like those little balls of kerosene that you just throw in the air. <laughs> you did not explain that, no. 